Hello everyone, welcome back. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Welcome to a brand new series I'm introducing on the Dana Buckler Show. The working title for this is going to be the 20th Century Movie Club. Now how I got the idea for this is if you go back to the episode I did on The Exorcist where I kept referring to a particular co-worker who was in his early 20s and I kept asking him about have you seen this and have you seen that and nine times out of ten the answer had always been no and so I was very much you know very passionate about well you've got to see The Exorcist or you've got to see this you've got to see this you've got to see that and it dawned on me that I'm 40 years old and there is a ton of movies out there that I they're second nature to me. I grew up with them, but there's a whole generation that's coming after me that hasn't seen a lot of these, what we would dub, you know, just classic films. So I thought I would introduce a new segment on the show. Like I said, the 20th Century Movie Club. Now the rules for this is very simple. Myself, along with a co-host that I'm going to be introducing in just a moment, we are going to be recommending three movies apiece. And the only criteria for these selections is that they had to be released before the year 2000. Now, about a month and a half ago, I did put a call out saying that I was looking for someone to join me for this segment. And I, I, as I mentioned in the Primary Colors episode, I got, I mean, by this point, over 100 emails. And I got an opportunity to talk to a few people, Ashley being one of them, who's been joining me on some of the film history episodes. And another person that I spent a little time getting to know and chatting with is the co-host for this series. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Mike Scott. Mike, Welcome to the Dana Buckler Show. Please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hello, Dana. Uh, my name is Mike Scott. Yes, my name is actually Michael Scott. So send me all your office memes because I'm sure I haven't seen them before. Um, <laughs> but uh, I am a lawyer in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I have been a lifelong uh, movie nerd. I actually had sort of two career choices. I was either going to go into film criticism or law. And I realized that most people who go into film criticism don't make a ton of money and and so I picked law, which didn't work out because I don't make a ton of money doing that either. But I get to sort of have my cake and eat it, too, because I still get to watch a lot of movies uh, while doing a, a job that that I enjoy and, and is very fulfilling. Outstanding. And a question I always like to ask people, because podcasting is becoming more and more mainstream, you know, people listening to podcasts. But it's still I, I still have to explain to probably 50 percent of the people that I that I meet and I tell them what I do, what a podcast is. So I always, always interested, you know, how did you discover podcasts? And a follow up question to that is what are some of the podcasts that are in heavy rotation for you? Sure. So I first discovered podcasts probably around 2008 and have been kind of listening to podcasts off and on ever since. Um, but really the last couple of years, uh, my job requires a fairly long commute, and I find that podcasts are the perfect way to pass that commute. Um, and so the last couple of years, my podcast listening has really kind of exploded. And I actually found your show through F This Movie, which is one of my all-time just absolute favorite podcasts. It's a must-listen every week. When I first found that site, that sort of felt like a community to me. And when I first discovered that, I, of course, wanted to listen to everything that Patrick and Adam and everybody else on that show did. And they guessed on your show, you know, quite regularly. And so that's how I discovered your show. And your show is now one of my 
regular listens as well. Uh, most of my podcasts consist of movie podcasts. I listen to 80s all over the slash film cast. There's a great one out of England that's called Cinematic Universe that I listen to every every time they have a new one. Um, there There is a lot of podcasts out there. Oh, there absolutely is. And there's some there. I mean, podcast is, is it's it's radio on demand and there's literally a podcast for whatever you are interested in. And I think that's great. And, you, you know, you mentioned F this movie and uh, I always like to point out that that was one of the first podcasts that I started listening to back in 2011. And of course, it was one of the ones that inspired me to want to do a podcast myself. And so, you know, naturally having Patrick and, and of course, Adam on the show now as regular guests has just been, it's been a delight. And I, uh, I'm like you, there's a few podcasts for me that are, you know, when they drop, I listen to them right away and F this movie. Usually, usually I'm up at about six, six in the morning every, you know, every weekday. And that's about what time on Wednesdays that the F this movie pod new episode drops. And I'm usually listening to it while I'm having my coffee in the morning. So right there with you on the, uh, on the F this movie recommendation. We've selected three movies apiece. Now, here's the thing. We have not discussed what our picks are going to be. We want it. I want it to be as organic as possible. So there is a chance that Mike and I may have selected the same film. So we have included a wildcard pick, which will only list if we've selected the same films. And that way, you know, the wildcard can roll over to the next episode in this series. Mike, I'm going to start with you today. Can you give me your first recommendation on the first episode of the 20th Century Movie Club? Absolutely. So for my first picks, I kind of went with movies that my whole life I've sort of considered comfort movies. So, you know, we're going into the holidays. It's been a rough couple of years for a lot of people. Um, and these are movies that have always just been there for me when I am filling like I need some type of, of pick-me-up, some type of, of comfort. So the first one that I want to talk about is uh, 1985's Real Genius, directed by Martha Coolidge. It's a, a movie about a, a young 15-year-old uh, genius named Mitch Taylor who gets accepted to uh, essentially Caltech. It's not called Caltech in the movie, but it's Caltech. Uh, and there he rooms with a uh, an older student named Chris Knight, played by Val Kilmer. And Chris is also a genius and... Uh, a genius who has decided that there is more to life than just books and studying and killing yourself trying to advance, you know, scientific theories. And and it's just an absolutely delightful comedy. Martha Coolidge directed Valley Girl, directed this. She's a, a phenomenal comedy director. And this was, I think, one of her absolute high points as far as movies in her career. Any problems done, just as long as we have a working weapon by the end of June. I haven't had a working weapon since Korea. <laughs> when the military runs short on brains, they go hunting in Pacific Tech, an exclusive institution for outstanding intellects, where the superstar of smarts is Chris Knight. You have a jacuzzi? Absolutely. His hobbies violate the laws of gravity. What are you doing out there? Floating, sir. His homework could win a Nobel Prize. He's one of the ten finest minds in the country. And his IQ is higher than most people can count. I can't stand it. Have you ever seen a body like this before in your life? She happens to be my dog. Oh, well, I guess you have. 
But when Chris makes the scientific discovery of the century, you did it. his classmates want the credit. You're not number one around here anymore. His professor wants the publicity. I... And the military wants to use his discovery as the ultimate weapon. This is not good. So Chris is about to turn getting even into a science. And show them. Roger. Open Bombay doors. They should never try to outsmart. A real genius. Well, I have to say, we are to have our very first controversy on this episode <laughs> because, believe it or not, Mike, I've never seen Real Genius. For shame. I know. I know. So I'm I'm writing that down. I'm putting an asterisk ne- next to it because I guess I know what I'm watching tonight because the next time we talk, we're going to have to discuss that. I'm familiar with the movie. I, I've I've seen, you know, clips of it here and there. I've seen, you know, maybe flipping through the, tele- the, the television and coming across I certainly know what the movie is. I've just actually never seen it. It's one of those ones that just fell through the cracks. And it's not only one that you recommend, but it's one that a lot of people have recommended to me. So that is going to be something I will watch tonight. Good choice, by the way. I'm looking forward to seeing it. So for my first selection today, throughout my podcast, especially when I've had guests like Phil Juwano on the show, you know, we're constantly, I don't want to use the word bad-mouthing CGI effects, but we are... You know, we're, I think we're, we're both sad that so many action films out there have decided to go basically all CGI. And Phil made an interesting point to me one in, during one of our conversations that in a lot of cases, it would be cheaper for the studios to actually go practical on, in a lot of cases. But for some reason, CGI just gives them a blank canvas to do whatever they want. So... I was starting to think about what were some action movies from the late 80s and early 90s that I really liked that were, you know, bombastic in their set pieces and used little to no CGI. And I, I just immediately thought of the movie that I received for in Christmas of 94, one of my Christmas presents, I unwrapped a VHS copy of Jan de Bont's Speed, starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. And I, I of course, the litmus test for me was I, I asked that same coworker just two days ago. Have you ever seen Speed? Never heard of it. Okay. All right. I know I'm picking a good movie then. Uh, what I really like about Speed is a lot of what I just said. Well, it's one of the last true action films, with the exception of, say, The Rock that came out in 1996, that has these big, huge set pieces that are all practical. Now, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film, there is a particular scene involving the bus that in- involves it literally jumping from freeway to freeway. And you can go back and you go on YouTube and you can see how they actually pulled that off using a real bus. And this these days, that would never happen. It would all just be CGI. I, I think the movie is a lot of fun. I think it's nonstop action from start to finish. It's directed by Jan de Bont. And now, if that name is not familiar, he was the director of photography on arguably one of the greatest action films of all time. And that is 1988's Die Hard, which was directed by John McTiernan. And... For those that have seen Speed, I don't think it's a coincidence that the movie opens up in a high-rise building and that when 
the uh, the bomb goes off in the elevator that it stops at the 30th floor, which is, a, again, where the party was happening at Nakatomi Plaza. I think that was the director giving a very slight tip of the hat, hat to John McTiernan. So 1994's Speed is my first recommendation. All right, pop quiz. Airport, gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're 100 feet away. What do you think? Shoot the hostage. What? Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? All right, gentlemen, what we have here are 13 passengers in an express elevator. Bomb's already taken out cables. Bomber wants $3 million or he blows the emergency brakes. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? Uh, the basement. He can strike anywhere. At any time. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Why are they messing with me? Do they think I'm doing this for fun? For L.A. cop Jack Traven. Tell me again, Harry. Why did I take this job? Oh, come on, 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch. Cool. The game began. Very exciting, Jack. Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? I wasn't going to talk about it today, but I absolutely 100% was going to talk about speed at some point on this podcast because that movie is a masterpiece. Yes. Uh, it is a – every time I watch it, what I am – constantly amazed by is that it is a master class in action editing and pacing. Yeah. I, I cannot describe to people the way that that movie is put together. It, it is perfect. There is just such a, an escalation. It's a, it's a fairly clear three-act structure, but the way each act escalates, almost independent of the movie, but then ties together is just, it's absolutely unbelievable. I actually, this is going to be a bit of, of heresy for me to say, but... I actually prefer Speed to Die Hard um, because I think obviously Die Hard set down the template. And like you said, it's no coincidence that the opening occurs in a high rise building. Um, but I think Speed kind of elevates the the pacing that John McTiernan brought to Die Hard. I think Speed sort of elevates that and perfects that. The sort of the genre of Die Hard on a something. I think Speed is the the pinnacle of that. And uh, frankly, I've spent most of my life defending Keanu Reeves and I'm just giddy that we're sort of having a Keanu assance now with John Wick and Destination Wedding and some of the other movies that he's getting credit for. This goes back to a, a time when Keanu Reeves was still great. I mean, he is hands down one of our best action stars of all time, and he never gets the credit he deserves. And I always tell people, well, then just watch Speed. Watch what he does in that movie, the way he manages to be both very much like Bruce Willis and Die Hard, the way he manages to be both a traditional action hero, but also bringing that sort of inherent sensitivity that he brings to so many of his roles. I think that's a 
fantastic pick, Dana. I, I actually could talk for hours about speed. Um, that's how good I think it is. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, I mentioned her when during the fifth anniversary episode the, when I was talking to Phil, speed briefly came up and I said, that is definitely a stay tuned. You know, just looking at that opening scene, you know, in the high rise building, the fact that it's almost like Yonder Bond is saying, yeah, yeah, no, I, I you know, I sort of uh, cut my teeth in a high rise, but I'm ready to take it out to the entire, you know, city of Los Angeles. Again, I, believe it or not, as we're talking, I've got it on in the background and, and the TV, you know, and I'm just sitting here and watching it. And, and there's a couple things that stick out to me about this movie. One, I mentioned it was the the use of well, almost 100% practical effects. That is just, you know, something we don't see anymore. But two, this is a, a film that's rated R. And this is a movie that could very easily have been chopped down a couple little, you know, take a little bit of the language out. You could have, you know, edited a bit of the violence and you could have easily gotten the PG-13 rating. No problem. But this is 20th Century Fox. This is 1994 and 20th Century Fox. This was a time when they would still release films R-rated like this. I mean, and this was a huge hit. This was a very, very successful film. To me, watching this movie, as I, as I said, I've got it on in the background right now, this represents an era that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we will never see a movie on this scale, rated R, I mean, with the exception of your Deadpools or your, you know, your Logans, but that's, I think that's its own genre. We're just never going to see these big movies being released like this anymore. No, and I, and I think this is the the culmination of that 80s 90s big budget r-rated action movie I, I think this is the the culmination everything built to speed and i don't know that there's ever going to be one that's better um one last thing to say too let's also not uh, credit where credit's due watching the birth of a movie star in sandra bullock in this movie is just an absolute delight a absolutely no i agree 100 percent. okay all right well i think we're both <laughs> I think we're both uh, very much in the camp that Speed is one of the great action films of all time. Uh, you know, just to touch on what you said about you like Speed, you think Speed, you like Speed more than Die Hard. I think pound for pound, there's way more action in Speed. I mean, it's it's really nonstop. <sighs> That's tough. That's a tough call. They're, they're, to me, they're, they're both very, very good films, and I honestly don't know which one I could say I, I like better. I think they're both outstanding. I think part of it is because I, I feel like I mean, we're, we're you know, as we do every year, we're in the midst of his Die Hard a Christmas movie. Is it not? It is, by the way. But sure. um, I feel like Die Hard has gotten its due. It's gotten its credit. And I think that's part of the reason that I'm less receptive. It's not that I don't love Die Hard. It's not that I don't think it's a masterpiece. But I'm just every time I hear somebody mention Die Hard, I'm kind of the guy that's always going, yeah, but but over here is speed. Like, why are we not talking about speed as much as we're talking about Die Hard? That's, I think, the reason that that I gravitate. And, and again, the the Keanu Reeves factor. I love him. He's one of my favorite actors. So that's always going to kind of weigh the scale a little bit more. If I could just say one more thing before we wrap up this about Keanu Reeves is I didn't see the John Wick first John Wick film in the theater just, did, you know, for whatever reason, I, you know, just been so slighted by going to the movies that it's got to be something really, really, you know, huge, you know, that I, hugely and something that I'm hugely anticipating. And so I didn't see it. And, you know, I started hearing rumblings like, you know, that's a really good movie. You know, you should definitely check that out. And then the second one came out and it was getting good reviews and it was still in theaters. And I decided to sit down and watch the first John Wick and then, of course, immediately that day, rushed to the theater to go see the sequel because, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time because this is called the 20th Century Movie Club. But at the same time, I have to 
acknowledge that I think both John Wick films are outstanding. And I'm really happy to see that Keanu is, you know, still kicking ass in 2018. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So let's talk about your second pick for this episode. So I'm glad you picked an action movie for your first one, because that's going to segue nicely into my second one. So it's going to take everything I've got not to turn this podcast into a John Woo podcast. Um, (laughs) But one of the things we talked about is for our first movies, we we wanted to pick movies that were readily available for streaming. So there are some John Woo movies that I'll definitely talk about uh, down the road, but I wanted to go with one that's readily available. And most people would would probably default to face off but i am actually picking for my second movie 1993's hard target okay. starring jean-claude van damme a lot of people when they talk about this movie they kind of talk about it like it's lesser john woo and and just so everybody knows john woo is is i have a lot of directors i love but john woo is my favorite director he was my gateway to hong kong action cinema um and i'm of the opinion that there has been no more creatively bananas period in filmmaking history than about 1980 to 1997 Hong Kong. Um, And of course, like a lot of Hong Kong directors, Wu came over to America and uh, he teamed up for Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. While it's arguable that it's lesser Wu, I think that's a misreading of the movie. What people don't give enough credit for is how Wu actually elevated what Van Damme was doing at the time. I'm an 80s action guy, 90s action guy. I love Van Damme. But Hard Target was on a whole different level from any movie that Van Damme had made prior to that. And the only reason for that is because of what Wu brought to the table. This is a quintessential John Woo movie, at least in terms of style. All of his director trademarks are there. Slow motion, dissolves. Doves, everything that makes John Woo John Woo is there. And on top of that, it has at least some of the character development and melodrama that Woo's known for. Not so much with Van Damme, but with Lance Henriksen and uh, Arnold Vosloo's characters as the as the two main villains. They have a deep relationship in that movie uh, that is a, a textbook John Woo type of relationship. Uh, I, 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 a lot of people discount Hard Target. A lot of people kind of just sort of poo-poo it. And I, and I think they're really missing out on one of the great action movies of the 90s. Uh, the shootouts, the story, the setting in New Orleans, which was a brilliant decision to set it in a city that's so cinematic, but also just sort of alien enough to us because of its unique cultural heritage that we can buy a most dangerous game type scenario uh, occurring in that city. Uh, I, I just absolutely think Hard Target is an underappreciated gem of, of early 90s action cinema. In the city of New Orleans, in a darker side of Dixie, Away from the music and the lights, there's a new game in town. You'll be provided with a guide, trackers, and the weapons of your choice. I need to file a missing person report. The competitors are deadly. We pride ourselves in hunting only combat veterans, men who have the necessary skills to make our hunts more interesting. And they always win. You want to find your father? Get somebody who knows the city to show you around. Now, the opposition is about to get 
one last chance. Kind of a name is Chance. My mama took when. My friend, Mr. Boudreaux. Silver Star, Marine Force Recon. He's obviously not someone we should underestimate. He is an annoying little insect. I want him stepped on hard. We need to get out of here now. Ladies first. What? These men who are chased after you. You mad at you for business or pleasure? Both. Look at it this way. You're gonna get to meet Elvis. Give it a rest, pal. Jean-Claude Van Damme is the hard target. You miss me. From internationally acclaimed action director John Woo. Hostile to be hunted! You tell me! Hard target. And lest we forget one of the, the greatest performances by Wilford Brimley of all time. Absolutely. I was, Just absolutely nails that performance. To take, you th to, to take you through my first experience seeing Hard Target, this was the first Van Damme film that I saw in the theater. But I was very much aware. Let's see, 93, I would have been 15 years old. I, I, I think that's, yeah, I would have been 15. And by that point, uh, of course, you know, Bloodsport came out in 88 that was a movie that my friends and i were going ape shit over we couldn't watch that enough we loved that film and then you know i remember what i remember about the van damme era between Bloodsport and 93's hard target was i thought a lot of his movies following Bloodsport were very hit or miss for me like i didn't like cyborg i didn't like kickboxer for some reason i absolutely love lionheart and that movie is crazy and not in a good way i rewatched it recently i'm like why did i really like this movie but wrong that it's got one yeah. of Van Damme's best lines ever. Absolutely. Though, so you gotta love it. Absolutely. So by the time we get to 93, this is, I didn't see Universal Soldier in the theater. So that was, I think, Van Damme's really first big mainstream action film that he was involved in. But like I mentioned, this was the first John Woo experience I got. And you mentioned the, the setting, you know, New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans. Okay. The accents were all, it was all very foreign to me, of course. And the concept for the film, you know, you, you mentioned the most dangerous game. Again, these were all things that were very, to a 15 year old, you know, back then, they, they just, none of this was connecting. So I was seeing something really original to me, even though the, the, the concept for the film, the plot of the film was something that had been explored before. This was the first time I had seen, you know, the idea of you humans being hunted for sport. The John Woo aspect of her target, I think, was what I found most satisfactory about the film. Again, we talk about over the top action set pieces. With John Woo films, and particularly in Hard Target, some of the stunt work that was done in this film is still, to this day, some of the best I've ever seen. And some of the scenes just border on the ridiculously that could never happen, but there's that party that goes, well, I, yeah, I think that could happen. You know, like, it just, it really so delicately balances that line on, on the stunt work. And, of course, lest we forget, again, Yancey Butler's in this film, and, you know, she was in Drop Zone. She was in a bunch. Of, she was in a bunch of movies in the '90s, and then just kind of disappeared and was relegated to the you know the sci-fi original films. And that's a shame because I I really liked her as an actress in the 1990s. What I can say about Hard Target is I completely agree with you. Uh, my question to you would be: Is this the best Jean Claude Van Damme film? 
It depends on what your goal is. Uh, I, I think the the difficulty is JCVD exists, yes. and but that is such a unique, strange, odd movie in his in his filmography that I almost have to discount it. Uh, not that I discount its quality because it's an absolutely phenomenal movie. But if somebody was to say what Van Damme movie should I watch for me? This is his best movie. I love Bloodsport. And unlike you, I actually thought his early career was not hit or miss. It was I love every single one of his movies. I will go to bat for double impact like you wouldn't believe, because who doesn't want twice as many band names? <laughs> there is a level that woo elevates and it was pretty clear, you know, if you read some of the the backstory on this, they Van Damme and Wu had some some conflicts, but there was still clearly a professional respect there. And it was very clear that Van Damme didn't want to let Wu down. And, you know, producers uh, on this movie, Sam Raimi, uh, James Jack, Sean Daniel, they were there to make sure they they really went to bat to make a comfortable environment for Wu. And this wasn't a great experience for him. The studio didn't get him stuff like that. And yet, yet somehow they still managed to turn out this movie that was unlike anything that had been seen in Western cinemas up to that point. So unlike you, this was not my first experience with John Wu. I had actually discovered him through the killer a couple years before watched it probably way too young. I, I think I was probably 14 when I saw the killer uh, a little we have a little repertory theater here in Salt Lake called The Tower and they got it and showed it. It just blew me away. And so I was sitting here just waiting, waiting, waiting for Hard Target to come out. And to a certain extent, there is a bit of disappointment. I get that. The script is not the greatest. And it's certainly not as good as some of the scripts that Wu was working with in Hong Kong. But I still think based on Van Damme's filmography, uh, based on what 90s 80s and 90s action movies looked like at the time this is just so head and shoulders above most of them um and van damme has never really shown that kind of enthusiasm to a certain extent in for action scenes like he did in hard target i mean he's doing everything in that movie he's got his usual kicks and punches but he's doing gunplay like he had never done before he's doing all these stunts i mean that the Spoiler warning, but the final shootout in that Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras graveyard is just a, a sight to behold as far as how much is going on in any given shot. I mean, there's a dozen things happening in any shot during that final shootout. You know, I wonder if he could have envisioned, you know, when he did a movie like Bloodsport that, you know, because that was a pure martial arts film, you know, through and through. And I still love that movie. I mean, let's just just at its core. I think I think Bloodsport is just a fun, fun movie to watch. But I just I wonder if he even envisioned that by the time he would get to 93 that, you know, like you said, the gunplay, the massive stunts. I mean, this he was he was being groomed for being a huge action star in, you know, on the level of uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone. I mean, I think that's arguably where I think he envisioned himself going and certainly where, you know, studio heads were hoping to place him. I remember, I think it was the year after that, that Time Cop came out. I'm just curious, because I don't want to spend too much time on it, but where did Van Damme go wrong? You know, because, you know, you had Hard Target came out, uh, Nowhere to Run, which I think is an underrated film. I think that's actually a, a, a very decent, great movie, which I think, uh, again, we're talking about him being an action star. This was That was a far more dramatic film 
nowhere to run. It was certainly scaled back uh, action-wise. I'm just curious, where where do you feel like his career trajectory started to head south? I think there's a couple of things that happened. Uh, one of them is a, a movie that we just talked about. Die Hard started the process of the everyday action hero. But I think to a certain extent, speed really created that. The idea of Keanu Reeves, I mean, Ted Theodore Logan being an action hero was mind-blowing to a lot of people. I know he'd done Point Break prior to that. And I think a lot of it is timing. It's just that, like you said, Van Damme came kind of at the tail end of the Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris era. And we shifted to what we want an action hero to be. We don't necessarily want that big hulking monstrosity that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, you look at people who we would consider to be action heroes right now, and I know the action genre is a little different because we've got comic book movies, but in what world in the 80s would Chris Evans have been considered a major action star? But yet he absolutely is now because... That's what we want our action heroes to be. We want them to be Captain America. And secondly, I also think, you know, there's some pretty well documented and I I don't want to get too much into gossip, but I, I don't think it's necessarily gossip. He's been pretty upfront about it. Van Damme had some pretty well-documented substance abuse issues in the uh, mid to late 90s, and he became well-known for being very, very difficult to work with. Uh, And so part of it is, you know, you had Hard Target, Time Cop, which to this day, I believe, is still his highest grossing movie. But then he did Sudden Death after that. And that was a bit of a step down, even though I think that movie's amazing. And then slowly but surely, the times changed. His personality or the difficulties about him kind of got more well-known. The era just changed. Now, that being said, If you're not watching this stuff that Van Damme has been doing lately, a lot of it's direct video. A lot of it is incredibly low budget. Some of it is not very good, but the work that he personally is doing in these movies is really impressive. Uh, He has really come into his own as an actor. He really steers into... The years, you know, to to kind of quote Indiana Jones with Van Damme, it's not the years, it's the miles. He really steers into the miles with the characters that he's playing now. That really started with JCVD, and he has just kind of embraced that. Um, And so he is making some some pretty spectacular direct-to-video action movies um, and, and doing really good work in them now. So... I think there's a lot of things that that kind of culminated to sort of end his big budget career, but he's still out there, you know, making things happen. Just off the cuff, is there a, a recent Van Damme film that you could recommend people to listen to or excuse me, for people to watch? Universal Soldier Regeneration and Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning are absolutely jaw droppingly great. They're directed by John Hyams, the son of Peter Hyams, who directed Time Cop and Sudden Death. They take universal soldier in a whole different direction they are kind of there there is just a, this whole subgenre of direct-to-video action movies being done now that are you know we we kind of lamented the loss of the big budget action movie there are some direct-to-video action movies that are just some of the best action movies that have ever been made and universal soldier regeneration and universal soldier day of reckoning are two of them if you haven't seen them i cannot recommend them highly enough and honestly you don't even need to necessarily have seen the first universal soldier although it does help 
For my second pick, we're going to go back to high school. We're going to go back to high school in 1987. And listen, people may say I'm being a little bit biased because I am friends with the gentleman that directed this film. But I recently rewatched Three O'Clock High about a week ago. And it is still one of my favorite teen high school comedies that came out in the 1980s. Now, understand this. There are movies like The Breakfast Club and, you know, certain films that, you know, are just they're they're on they they stand on their own but what phil juano did as the director for three o'clock high i thought was a very stylistic and very well i mean this was his debut film and the way he put together these massive long tracking shots and single takes and and great editing techniques and a fantastic score by tangerine dream it's still one of my all-time favorite high school movies from the 1980s one of the main amazing things about this podcast is like i was a big fan of three o'clock high long before i met phil so when i you know got introduced to him and had an opportunity to talk to him that was a dream come true this is a movie that didn't do very well when it came out it just kind of opened up one weekend and then it was just out of the theaters about two weeks later but it slowly has built up quite the cult following and shout factory just recently re-released the film on blu-ray and there's a wonderful wonderful director's commentary by phil so i strongly recommend three o'clock high i guess i should have known from the beginning it was going to be one of those days his name is Jerry Mitchell. Hi, Jerry. 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 Hi, I'm, I'm Jerry Mitchell. I'm with the school paper. <laughs> he just met the new kid in school. The guy's the closest thing to Charlie Manson ever seen at Weaver. Now, we're going to have a fight today after school. He's got six hours to get out of it. It's been quite a morning, Jerry. You can say that again. He'll try running. I wouldn't leave school without a good reason. He'll try bribery. If I can get that money, do you think you'd do it for me? Ravel will never bother you again. Guaranteed. He'll try robbery. I hear you're giving Jerry Mitchell a hard time, man. Till finally... The fight is on. You and me in the parking lot. Three o'clock. Jerry's got a lot on his mind. Ten seconds. But he's not thinking about math or English. Five seconds. Because at three o'clock, he's going to make history. There isn't going to be any fight today. (laughs) So this is my real genius. I have never seen three o'clock high. I am. I am familiar with it. I remember when it came out in the theaters, I I think I probably would have been 87 is when you said it came out. So I would have been 11. I just never got around to seeing it, which I'm kind of surprised I never caught it on HBO, you know, one afternoon. But I will certainly be now adding it to the list and watching it uh, either tonight or tomorrow uh, so that we can come back and, and talk about it next week. Outstanding. And then after you see the movie, go back and listen to... The episode where I had Phil on, I believe it's the episode, Phil Giovanni, The Journey, and he talks about, he tells a fantastic story about Steven Spielberg offering him this film. Phil was discovered by Spielberg, and he had done some work for him on The Amazing Stories TV show, and then Steven offered him his first 
opportunity to direct a motion picture, and it was 3 o'clock high, and I won't say anything more than that, except that it's a fantastic story. I mean, Phil is a fantastic storyteller, and this story had me just jaw on the floor. So I, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to the episode, Phil Juano, The Journey, because it's, it's a great story. So what is your next pick? So I had, uh, as I mentioned at the start, I am an attorney, and I uh, honestly, for better or worse, there is a movie more than anything that is responsible for me going to law school. I even wrote about it in my personal statement. And that is uh, setting the Wayback Machine. And part of it's just timing. I was a sophomore in high school trying to figure out what, you know, I was applying to colleges and I wanted to know, you know, sort of a career plan. And so in 1992, Rob Reiner dropped A Few Good Men. And that movie, again, for better or worse, changed my life. For those who don't know, A Few Good Men, 1992 legal drama starring Tom, a, a cast that just has to be seen. Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Pollock. I mean, Kiefer Sutherland is basically in a bit part and ER's Noah Wiley shows up for two minutes in the movie. That's how stacked this movie is top to bottom. And it is one of, I think, uh, the most impressive legal movies uh, that has ever been made. It's not the most accurate and that's something that I'm sure will come up down the road as we talk about more legal movies because I can't not talk about them, what's accurate, what's not. Mm -hmm. But just in terms of emotion and plotting and the acting that, I mean, everybody brought their A-game to this movie. There is not one single person who was on cruise control for this movie. We have the birth of Aaron Sorkin. Uh, this is, you know, he wrote this as a play, but sold the rights as a movie before the play even premiered. Um, I've seen the play. I've seen the movie. They're fairly similar. Few minor differences. Um, and you can already see, again, whether you like Aaron Sorkin or not, you can already see watching this movie that Aaron Sorkin sort of emerged fully formed as as the Aaron Sorkin that we know him to be. Um, but this this movie is just top to bottom packed with, I think, exciting scenes, which is impressive when the scenes consist of people sitting in rooms talking and a continually building pace to the, again, spoiler alert, showdown between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in the courtroom that even people who haven't seen the movie clearly know that scene and and some of the famous lines from that scene. I think it's just an, an absolutely spectacular film. You ever served in an infantry unit, son? No, sir. Ever served in a forward area? No, sir. Ever put your life in another man's hands, ask him to put his life in yours? No, sir. We follow orders, son. We follow orders or people die. It's that simple. Are we clear? Yes, sir. Are we clear? Crystal. All those having business with this general court-martial, stand forward and you shall be heard. The facts of the case are these. On midnight of September 6th, the accused entered the barracks room of their platoon mate. They woke him up, tied his arms and legs with tape, forced a rag into his throat. A few minutes later, a chemical reaction caused his lungs to begin bleeding. He drowned in his own blood and was pronounced dead at 37 minutes past midnight. Do you think Santiago was murdered? Private Santiago is dead, and that is a tragedy. But he is dead because he had no code. He is dead because he had no honor. And God was watching. How do you feel about that theory? 
Sounds good to me. I'll knock it all down to involuntary manslaughter. No deal. We're going to court. No, you're not. Why not? Because you'll lose. You want to investigate me? Roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who were trained to kill me. So don't think for one second you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. Your men follow orders or people die. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You! But if this case is handled in the same fast food, slick-ass, Persian bizarre manner with which you seem to handle everything else, then something's gonna get missed. In the heart of the nation's capital, in a courthouse of the United States government, one man will stop at nothing to keep his honor, and one will stop at nothing to find the truth. For a few good men, this is a movie that I've probably I've seen at least ten times. It's 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 a it's an outstanding movie. A couple of the things that really stand out to me, Mike, about this movie is for a movie that has a running time, two hours and twenty minutes, the pace of the film could almost be described as breakneck in some cases. I mean, it is going from and there is not a wasted scene in the film. I often refer back to other other directors I've talked about who talk about, you know, there being filler in movies. You know, they they you know, there's like thirty seconds here, thirty seconds there, you know, just you know, just something that's not advancing the narrative forward. With a few good men, from the opening shots, I mean from the opening scenes, it is incredibly well paced. And dare I say it. One of Tom Cruise's best performances that he's ever given. He is so damn charismatic in this film. But when he has to turn it on and do his job, he is amazing. It's almost, you almost, with Demi Moore's character, you know, she thinks that Cruise is the wrong person for this job. And Cruise is doing nothing to sort of persuade her that, you know, he is the right person to be doing this job. And you as the audience almost start to go, maybe he isn't the right lawyer for these two Marines accused of murder. Clearly, the brass knows he's the best one for the job. And when he has to prove to Demi Moore and to everyone else that he is the best man for the job, it is just an amazing transformation that you see him make. Jack Nicholson, again, what do we say? I mean, this guy's on a completely different level. Outstanding movie. I, listen, outstanding pick, outstanding movie. You know, you know, a movie's great when it gets me tongue tied, and I'm just trying. <laughs> and I can't think about all the great things, uh, all the all the praise I want to heap upon a film. Well, and there's there's just so much about it that is is actually really important in terms of the people involved in it. Um, so, for instance, like you said, Tom Cruise is just absolutely stunning in it. And, you know, and people talk a lot about when he did Magnolia. Everybody's like, oh, who knew Tom Cruise could act? And I'm sitting here going, uh, I did because I've seen A Few Good Men. It's almost like that role was written for him. I, I cannot imagine a more perfect casting for that role than Tom Cruise. And the important thing is, is this is a huge movie in his career because he had – a few years before had done Rain Man. That was a big hit. That's another one where when people say who knew Tom Cruise could act, I'm like, I've seen Rain Man. Uh, but then he followed that up with Born on the Fourth of July, which was a very good movie, very good role, but didn't make quite as much money as people thought. Uh, and then Days of Thunder and Far and Away both were kind of box office disappointments far and away was a huge box office disappointment. And so there were some people really questioning, you know, where is Tom Cruise at? And then that same year, literally May, far and away disappoints. 
December, A Few Good Men comes out and starts a run of five straight movies that do more than $100 million at the box office and really just catapults him. That was the era when he became the biggest movie star in the world. And that started with A Few Good Men. We also, to a certain extent, have kind of the end of Rob Reiner. Uh, with this movie. He had a couple of other movies that I think were were very good that came out after A Few Good Men, specifically The American President. But he follows this movie up. Here's the movies that he did leading up to A Few Good Men. This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and then A Few Good Men. That is a run that any director would be envious to have. I'm not sure that you know, as much as we love the the great directors, I would almost take that run of Rob Reiner movies over any other run that any director has ever had. I mean, these are culturally defining movies. Yeah. He follows A Few Good Men up with North, yeah. one of the all-time bombs in, in Hollywood history. And his career has more or less never recovered from that. So this really does signify, I, I think some people could argue the American president and I love the American president. They could argue that that sort of signifies the end of Rob Reiner, but this is the end of that run, uh, that, that just any director would kill to have in his career. You mentioned the run that Rob Reiner had. And, you know, it's interesting because I knew he directed all of those movies you mentioned, but for them to come out one after another like that, I mean, I look at Stand By Me as one of the, you know, when that movie came out, I, you know, you and I, I think we're both, we're kind of in that age range of those kids. I mean, it's something that we could so easily identify with. And it's just, you, you talk about just groundbreaking films and The Princess Bride is still easily one of the one of the top favorite films to ever come out of the 1980s and misery is just i mean i'm just i'm gushing over over these films and a few good men and then there's north and i'm just <laughs> like i remember that that's elijah wood and bruce willis yep now that's an example of a film where proper film criticism served me well as in i saw siskel and ebert review north on their show at the movies and to this day, I've I've never seen it, and I I don't think it I don't think I ever want to I don't think I ever want to see it I don't think I ever want to revisit it or revisit it. Excuse me, I don't think I ever want to visit it because it doesn't seem to even fall into the it's so bad it's good category. Have you seen North? I have. I unfortunately saw North when it came out, and again because a few good men. I mean, I loved a few good men. It's. It's bad, Dana. And I, I try not to be negative when I talk about movies. Sure. I think there's enough negativity in the world. Sure. But some movies are bad enough that you can't – You there's there's not even glimmers that you can pull out of like, oh, well, this is good. Let's talk about – no, it's it's just – it's bad. It's uh, And like I said, it, unfortunately, if you look at the movies he's made after North, it's almost as though it broke – him or it broke his career i i'm not sure but nothing he's made since except for arguably the american president has has even come close to what he's made what he made in that run um prior to okay yeah no i agree i agree all right so for the final pick of this episode i want to point out no wild card was needed today all right well we don't know yet with my last pick here i so far no wild card pick has had to be issued 
But for I'm going to go with a movie that came out in 1992. Now, this film was directed by Phil Alden Robinson. That name sounds familiar. He was the director of the Kevin Costner baseball classic Field of Dreams. This movie stars Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Sidney Poitier, River Phoenix, just to name a few. It is called Sneakers. And this is a movie that is... I can't wrap my head around why more people don't talk about this film. This is... It's a comedy crime drama. And it is so damn entertaining. This LTX-71 concealable mic is part of the same system that NASA used when they faked the Apollo moon landings. Work for them. Shouldn't give us too many problems. They break and enter. How are we doing? Cause and position on the fire escape. Mothers in the cable vault. Carrying to sever master circuit. But they're not thieves. We're getting too old for this. They know your secrets. But they're not spies. It's gotta be there somewhere. What's he doing? I'm like, no, really? Mr. Bishop, do you mind if I take a look? Carl. Grow up. I give you something to work, baby. So people hire you to break into their places to make sure no one can break into their places? It's a living. Not a very good one. Now they've got a new client. National Security Agency. I don't work for the government. Relax, Marty. It's just everybody on your team has had some sort of problem in their past. Now what are you saying? The NSA killed Kennedy? No, they shot him, but they didn't kill him. He's still alive. They may not want the job. Liz, I need your help. I will not be dragged back into your world. But they don't have a choice. We don't want to bust you. We want to hire you. We're the good guys, Marty. Can't tell you what a relief that is, Dick. Your job is to find that little black box. We got it. Holy cow. What the hell is this? There's a war out there, old friend. A world war. Oh, my God. How is this possible? It's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information. Anybody want to shut down the Federal Reserve? Hey, don't wait, screw wait, around wait, with wait, that wait. thing. It's all about the information. So it's the code breaker. No, it's the code breaker. Battle stations. Do you have the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Where is the item? Can you guarantee my safety? Martin, you've got trouble. Here, maybe this might help. Old buddy of mine who was in Desert Storm sent it to me. Of course, he was on the other side. Now give me the box, Martin! I'm an excellent marksman, woman. I'm Carl. There's a fire escape at the end of the North Corridor. Go directly north, directly north, about 30 yards. Five seconds. Hang up, fish. Hang up. They've almost got us. To anybody that's listening, if you haven't seen Sneakers, we've recommended a lot of good movies this podcast. Forget them all. See Sneakers now. Sneakers is so delightful and entertaining and just absolutely a... A, a wonderful two hours at the movies. I, I hate using platitudes like that because it just sounds kind of empty, but that movie is so goddamn fantastic that I just, I actually get like kind of chills even talking about it. I like that movie so much. One of the things I didn't want to do because this is, this is sort of a, you know, this is the movie I thought I don't even want to give the plot. That's why when I was going, well, this is a movie about a band of, and I said, you know what? 
I went into this movie not knowing anything out about it. My sister rented it from the video store. It was family movie night at my house, you know, one Sunday evening, and we popped it in. And, of course, my mom being the, the biggest Robert Redford fan in the world. I don't want to spoil what this movie's about. If nobody has seen the movie, I, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to play an audio clip from the film because this is this is a hidden gem. And I was it really just, is. I want to talk about, you know, I want to talk about the director just for a moment, Phil Adam, Alden Robinson. This is a guy who made Field of Dreams. That's a seminal classic in its own. But his directing credits are very, very limited. I mean, he did George Burns, a few episodes of the George, George Burns Comedy Week in 1985. He did Field of Dreams, Sneakers. He did a couple TV movies. And then we go all the way to 2002's The Sum of All Fears, which was a, another reboot in the Jack Ryan franchise and spoiler alert there will be some jack ryan films throughout the these episodes i can assure you of that uh, this is a movie that was successful by all accounts it was a successful movie where where did this go wrong i mean this is a this is an amazing film which i'm not going to talk about the plot but what do you think like why is this not discussed i don't know you know a lot of the movies that we talked about this this episode uh, I think especially in particular sneakers and, and a few good men are, are really emblematic of an era that that is kind of dead, which is the mid to large budget movie made for adults. And uh, sneakers is, is absolutely that. Movies that are similar in its vein uh, that maybe have glossier or, or more popular. But to tell you the truth, I don't know why this movie isn't more talked about. It's got a cast that rivals a few good men's um, is paced incredibly well. And it's it's above and beyond the rest of the cast. It's Robert Redford doing what Robert Redford does, which is just dominating a movie screen every time he steps on it. Uh, I, I cannot figure it out, but I'm glad you brought it up because I think I know that uh, there are some writers on the Internet that uh, that still champion this movie. Uh, Priscilla Page, who's one of my favorite writers, she's written for Birth Movies Death. She loves this movie and is constantly tweeting about it and talking about it. But not enough people are because this thing is just wonderful. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. OK, so listeners, those were our six picks today. And what we'd like for you to do is, especially if you haven't seen them, we'd love for you to seek these movies out, watch them, email the show, thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. Let us know that you saw the movies. Let us know what you thought, good or bad. And if you have seen these movies, we still want to hear your thoughts. And we'll certainly read all the emails that we get throughout these episodes. So, Mike, if people want to follow you on any social media platforms, what's the best way they can follow you? Best way to follow me is on Twitter at Hibachi Justice, H-I-B-A-C-H-I-J-U-S-T-I-C-E. Uh, that's pretty much the only social media that I that I hang out on, but so, I'm on there all the time. Mike, thank you for being on the very first episode of the 20th Century Movie Club. I am I've got a little homework to do since I haven't seen Real Genius. So that is, you know, when we talk again, that will be, uh, I think, the first topic of discussion. And I'm hoping by then you'll have an opportunity to see 3 o'clock high and we can discuss those two. And I always think it's going to be interesting because I feel like every once in a while we're going to hit each other with films we haven't seen. And that's fun, too, because I love discovering movies that I haven't seen, especially from that era in uh, especially from, you know, before the year 2000. So, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. All right, everybody. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.